Well, Happy New Year, everyone. How many, how many of you could identify with something on that list, right? <laughs> Pretty convicting. Uh, here we are, as Sue Ann said, first Sunday of January, and in a time and a place in our culture where we talk about New Year's resolutions. So some of you have made New Year's resolutions. Some of you have made a resolution not to make a resolution. And whether you are into the whole reboot my life in January thing or not, we can't avoid the fact that the wider culture around us gets into this at the beginning of January. You have probably seen in your inbox, in your spam, or whatever it is, advertisements for detox diets and the new gym that may be opening up near you. There are more books sold this time of year on decluttering your life and great organizational strategies to get whatever part of your world under control that you feel like you need to control. We ask ourselves this time of year, how can I get more organized? How can I gain some ground in certain areas of my life? What will it take to stand at the end of this year and feel better about the end of this year than I did about the beginning? Now, Americans, as we said, make New Year's resolutions, and there's been some research and some polls um, done to find out who uh, we are and what we resolve to do better, and the top resolutions are to exercise more, to lose some weight, to organize our finances, to quit smoking, to travel more, start a new hobby, read more books, or find a new job. These are the, the top things that we say uh, we want to do. And again, even if this isn't our thing to set about making resolutions, culturally, a ton of us have had some downtime between Christmas and New Year's Eve. I saw a funny meme on Instagram that said that space of time a few days after Christmas where you forget who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and most of us have been off. We've been in our pajamas quite a bit. My kids have been in the basement playing Fortnite for hours and hours at a time. I looked over the fence yesterday and um, we've got fabulous neighbors and my next door neighbor has twin kindergarten boys and uh, they were going bananas in the backyard. And in my backyard, my daughter and her gal pal were going bananas in our backyard. And my neighbor and I looked at each other and said, it is time to go back to school. <laughs> we need some structure. We need some organization. And this impulse comes from something that's innate, uh, hardwired into us. Uh, psychologists and researchers would say that even those of us who would say we are disorganized need order that it is part of the shared human experience to make sense of the world, to create in our minds organizational systems to take and make order out of chaos. And this is designed in us from God. If we believe God created us, then he created us with this impulse for transformation and for organization. And the scriptures that we read together today, but that we can read on our own way more than we can just read today, are about transformation. Passage after passage, chapter after chapter of the Bible talks about this impulse for transformation. And the Bible provides chapter after chapter of instruction, information, how do I become the version of me that God has created me to be. The creation narrative begins 
with God, taking the formless, chaotic, empty void and speaking order into it. Let there be light. And so there was light and darkness. There was evening and morning and day and night, sun up, sun down. This is the rhythm of humanity since that time. The church throughout history has organized itself around seasons of Advent or Lent or days like Epiphany and ordered itself around times of prayer or meditation and fasting or even ordered itself down to the hour on which moment the church bell will ring. One of the first things that God did was invite humanity to name and organize and order the species, to name the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And very early in the Old Testament, we have a narrative called the Book of Exodus. And it's the story of the movement of God through the people of Israel, but in part, it's the story of how God organized and instructed and transformed the Israelites through the desert, through their hard times, through their moments of worship, created for them a structure and a system for worship, gave them instructions on how to build a temple, a tabernacle, a place for worship. There's an interchange in in, uh, in Exodus 18 with Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. And Moses is stressed out The Israelite community is growing, and with growth comes more people, and more people means arguments and neighbors, and my property line is here, and yours is there, so what am I supposed to do, and who meditates these disputes? And so Jethro pulls Moses aside, and he says, what you are doing is not good, meaning letting all this just sort of happen or try to manage it all yourself. He says, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen to me now, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. And we go on in that chapter to read a system for transformation in organization and leadership that is played out for Moses. Later in the New Testament, Paul, in Romans 12, in a a well-known, well-loved verse, talks about how to organize and change our spiritual lives. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this passage goes on, and line after line, verse after verse, tells us how to discern what our spiritual gifts are, how to use them for the good of the community and others, and provides instruction, a method for organizing our spiritual lives. Mark chapter 6 reveals that Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, and it's so interesting in Mark 6 because there are some big moments in Mark chapter 6. The big moments of scripture we know, and sometimes we race through the little details of scripture to get through the big moments. And there's this big moment where Jesus sends out his disciples. But before it we read, he didn't just say to them, good luck, hope you guys figure this out, report back, let me know how it's going. He very specifically says to them, he goes, take nothing for the journey except your staff. He says, wear sandals, but don't pack an extra shirt. He literally tells them how to pack for this experience. And then he sends them out. 
And then just a few paragraphs later, we have the famous feeding of the 5,000, which again, yes, let's get to the loaves and the fishes and this miracle and how God does it. But what we don't often read is the verse that comes before it. Jesus directed them all to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down together in groups of hundreds and fifties. He actually counted them out and sat them in groups, like the holding pen at the beginning of the Chicago Marathon, <laughs> depending on what mile time you run, right? He organizes people. And then as we prayed lastly this morning, Sue Ann led us in the Lord's Prayer. And the chapter that leads to the Lord's Prayer is instruction on how not to pray and how so many religious leaders have gotten the heart of prayer wrong. And Jesus says, this then, this is my instruction, this then is how you should pray. And he leads us then into the Lord's Prayer. So if we are hardwired for transformation, for organization, if this is how our minds work, and if we worship a God who provides instruction on discipleship, on transformation, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we being transformed? Is spiritual transformation, is your life of faith, is it a transformational experience for you? How organized is our prayer life? Do you have a plan to read scripture? How are those family devotions going? Did you join that small group? Did you start that journal? Did you read that book? What are your service and volunteer commitments? And if any of this is making you look at your feet and feel a little uncomfortable, wanting me to move on to my next point, please know you are not alone. I would very much like to move on to my next point as well because I'm squirming inside too. And so what I would love to do with us this morning is not start you off on some epic guilt trip here at the beginning of 2019, but to have a dialogue with one another about how we can transform our lives so that they better reflect the glory of God and the love of Jesus. Most practicing Christians, folks that show up to church on a day like this, more than one or two times a year, most practicing Christians confess they don't have an adequate plan to transform their spiritual lives. According to the Barna Research Group, 60% of practicing Christians report little to no growth on their discipleship journey. If that's you and you're having that experience, it's okay. That's what we're here for. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, look, I'm here. That's a great first step. The bears aren't playing till 340. I can fit this in, right? And, and that is a great first step. So we celebrate that with you. That's Fantastic. But if we want to talk about how to put some concrete structure to our spiritual lives, what I'd like to do this morning is unpack something called a rule of life. And sometimes as preachers, we get up here and we rip through some thick theology, and other times we study a particular character in Scripture. Sometimes we'll go verse by verse through a, 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 an intricate passage, and sometimes we talk about practices of faith things the Christian community led by the Spirit of God has done to achieve their goals of growth. And so that is what we're doing this morning. A rule of life has been part of many Christian communities for centuries. 
It's about creating a predictable pattern for growth. It's not a one-liner. It's more than a tweet or a post or a wooden sign that's hanging in our kitchen, lovely as some of those sayings may be. But it's a well-thought, well-ordered document, if you will, about how you plan to achieve a life that draws closer to God. St. Benedict is one of the uh, most famous uh, creators of a rule of life. He was a sixth century monk with the leader of a monastic community. He actually wrote a 15 chapter rule of life. I'm not gonna ask you to do that. But what they determined together as a monastic community at that time in history was that they would be about certain things together. And here are some of what they did. They agreed that they would deny their own will as often as possible that they would seek to find God's presence everywhere, that they would seek out meaningless and mundane work so that they could remind themselves that they were what they called worthless workers and they would actually seek out mundane tasks. They would practice quiet and if they decided to speak, they agreed they would speak simply and honestly and they organized their lives around hours of prayer. So many hours a day, a bell would ring and they would all stop the work they were doing and they would agree to meet together and to pray. This was their rule. And so when you craft a rule, what you are doing is creating a structure for you personally or a group of people that you are invested in, a family circle, a small group, or whatever it might be, that you, a rule that you can live together. Now, I don't know if the word rule uh, makes any of you nervous. Some of you are rule followers and you're like, yeah, I like that. I can do a rule. Um, I am not a rule follower. I, I wish I was. When someone says to me, this is the rule, I immediately try to find the workaround. And I think to myself, well, who are you to make that rule? Why does your rule trump my rule? How did, wh who put you in charge of me? You're not the boss of me. And I kind of work around rules. This is not a power trip. The God of the universe isn't sitting up in heaven with an iron fist saying, you will do my rule. No, this is a structure for growth. The Latin root of the word rule is actually regula, which means structure, regulation, organizational system, so that you can have freedom, so that your life could actually flourish. We moved into the house we live in now about 10 years ago, and it was a house that had been owned previously. It was in a new house. And so if you've ever moved into uh, a home that has been previously owned, you know that come spring the first year, all sorts of green things crop up from the ground, and you don't know what the previous homeowners planted. And I am not a gardener. I wish I was, but I'm not. And so that first summer we lived there, this giant viney, ball of stuff grew up next to our deck and it had these stunning purple flowers on them. And it was this odd looking vine plant and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And our next door neighbor at that time came over and she said, hey, that's actually a really pretty um, plant. It's called a clematis and it's a vine and the owners before you used to have a trellis and it grew up on the trellis. It's really pretty. She said, you should, you should get a trellis. So I was like, okay, let's get a trellis. And so my husband built a trellis. And sure enough, the next summer, I took uh, little bits of that vine and put them on the bottom rung. And it grew up pretty and it grew sideways and it started to cover uh, the banister of our deck. It's gorgeous. These plants can grow up to 30 feet 
if they're structured properly. Structure, a rule for growth. I lose my keys and my phone multiple times a day, every single day, every single day. And when the ringer is off, I rip through my house, picking up jackets and sweatshirts. Where's my phone? I have my children call me. Somebody call me. I can't find my phone and my keys. My husband, Joel, is uber organized. He's a, an engineer. He's linear. He never loses anything. And he watches me run around the house for my stuff. And every now and then, he says, you know, if you just put everything in the same place, every time you came home, this wouldn't happen. And I'm so mature. So I look at him, I'm like, as I'm like ripping things apart. But like, I need that structure because I literally have no freedom. I cannot leave my house until I find my keys. And sometimes I lose the spare keys. And then we're really in trouble. And I don't tell him how many times I take the keys and, and don't put them back, the spare keys. This is a structure that gives us freedom. God is saying to us, come up with a plan. Put your soul in the same place every day. Let's find our way through this together. In John chapter 10, Part of the great I am statements of scripture, Jesus talks about, I am the shepherd and I am the gate and I'm the way of life. And he says this, I am these things and I, I seek to organize you and the, the sheep and there's a pen and there's things you can do and there's things you can't do. And then he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I have come to help instruct and organize and lead you so that you can be the fullest expression of what I, the God of the universe, created you to be. So that you can always find your keys and go wherever I intend for you to go. So what exactly is then a rule of life? And if this is something that is speaking to you right now, you can Google your brains out this afternoon. There is so much great stuff out there on this. You will not be at a loss to find great resources if you just simply Google rule of life. But rather than give you a whole list of resources, what I'd love to do this morning is just walk you through a few basic points on how you could do this. So bust out the notes on your phone or, or make uh, quick notes um, with a pen, whatever um, sounds easiest to you. What we want to first ask ourselves when creating our rule of life is this. Who is God? Who is God? And now my guess is you're sitting here going, well, that's easy. I know. He's, you know, he's love. He's grace. He's truth. And the reality is you all probably came up with a different answer. And almost all of them are right. God is many things. And so what attribute of God speaks loudest to you? What is the God of the universe saying, pay attention to this about me? Are you drawn to the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New? Does the God of power and might move you when you think of God who created the mountains and the rumbling thunder and the roaring oceans? Is that the attribute of God? Are those the passages of scripture where you're like, there's my God? Or do you draw to the still small voice, the whisper, the God of comfort and peace and healing that sits with us when we ache or when we struggle?
is the God of grace or the God of justice where you resonate? Are you the God, do you worship the God of creation or the God of the city that brings millions of different people together? Is it a section of theology from Paul or is it a glimpse of the worship at the end of time in Revelation? Find out what passage of scripture says to you this is who God is. Write it down, tack it on your bulletin board. If you're sitting here today, you're like, wow, I don't even have a Bible. Download one, the YouVersion app, grab one on your way out. There's some in the chairs up there. Find out, troll through scripture, who is God? Find that passage that speaks to you and mark it and make it yours. Once you do that, you know who God is, ask yourself, what is my unique response to God? What is my response? Because I'm different than you. We are all different people. So what are the gifts and the talents, the resources, the ideas, the skills, the life experience that are yours? How do you uniquely craft a response to this God? Are you a dancer or a painter, a poet, a teacher, a leader? What is your temperament? Are you an extrovert, introvert? I don't know, pick your Myers-Briggs or strength finder or whatever it is that says I'm different than you. How are you different? Because you will respond differently to God than the person sitting next to you. And there are, of course, to be certain, some responses to God that we all have to have. Awe, worship, adoration, prayer, scripture reading, but how you do those things will look different for all of you. What scares you? What excites you? Make a list, if you need to, of these things. Who is God? What is my unique response to that God? Proverbs 16, 3 says this, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plan. So commit to God who you are and whatever you set about doing, and he will establish your plans. He will help you come up with a plan to find him. Last, what are the practices then that lead you to that God? What do you need to do? What habits do you need to create in your life or further in your life this year that will get you to a place of honoring and worshiping that God? Some things, again, are true for all of us. Others are small things that some of us do and some of us don't. And again, if your temperament is drawn to the arts, then you're going to find yourself practicing your faith by writing poetry or creating beautiful music. The musicians up here, Chad Negley, he and Anna, his wife, are musicians. They come to God in practices that are very different than mine. I can't sing to save my life. And he and Anna write songs together and play piano and guitar, so their spiritual practices are gonna look very different than the practices that take place in our house, which currently the only music is an 11-year-old learning violin. So the practices in our house are very different. I love to run. Not everybody loves to run. And every time I go running, about a mile into my run, I turn off my little Spotify playlist and I run in silence for a little bit, and I just am overwhelmed with gratitude when I go running, which I, for a non-runner sounds crazy. But I stop and I think to myself, praise God 
praise God, thank you, Lord, because I have legs and lungs. I have breath and life. I can run. Not everybody can. And there will be a day in my life where I will no longer run. But thank you, Jesus, that today I'm running. And then if God brings something else to my mind, I'll pray. I'll pray for people. I'll pray for houses I pass by that I don't even know people who are in them. And then the moment will be over, and I'll go back to my playlist, and I'll come home. But that is a practice. If you are not a runner, that sounds like torture. That is not a practice that you want to do. So what is your practice? Do you need to journal? Do you need to paint? Are you a person drawn to the compassionate nature of God? And if that is the case, then who are you having over for dinner in 2019? Who beyond maybe your friends can you extend compassion to? Do you need to put into your spiritual plan practices for hospitality and bringing the lost and lonely, perhaps, over uh, to dinner? What do you need to do to get to the God who loves you and created you to be who you are? This is what a rule of life is. It is a conversation that you have with God to establish these things. It's best if you write them down because come June, you're going to forget. What is that thing I said I was going to do? Write it down, voice text it to yourself, I don't know. But take some time and figure this out. This is part of the Christian life. It's called discipleship. And if we believe what we say we believe about God, then this is what we have to do. This is how faith gets real. We deepen our faith. We understand more about God. Now, in closing, I will say this. Some of you, and I find myself sometimes in this category, love to check things off a list. You're a list person. And you want to accomplish this. You have, maybe some of you are halfway through this already on your phones as we're talking or you are looking for a moment where you can somewhere in this year say, rule of life, wrote it, lived it, nailed it, done. Or you're competitive and you want a better and more robust rule of life than the person sitting next to you. If that is you, I, I, I'm going to disappoint you and say you will never get to the end of your rule. Now your rule may change. You may have a rule that you follow when you're 20 that is very different when you're 80. Life changes and God reveals new things to us. Some things will stay true all the way along and others, like your practices, may change. But what you need to realize is that this is a process. This is a relationship. This is a journey. You don't arrive in a relationship. You keep crafting it and finessing it and moving in and through it. And so it is in our lives with Christ. We have... Um, We've got this great quote um, that I want to end with here, a guy named Jeffrey Thomas. He talks about um, the practice of reading scripture. And he specifically in this quote talks about reading scripture, but what he's saying applies to all of the other practices too. And it applies to this idea of, of rule. And he talks about how we don't achieve a moment where we go, aha, I finished this. But what we are really yearning for and bringing about is the trans process that draws us closer to Christ. So here's what he says. He says, so 
do not expect to always get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience. I mean, how many of us do? You may do a practice and say, yeah, okay, God, where are you? I'm ready to, I'm ready to feel good about this. But you're often going to get no emotional response at all. So, let the word break over your heart and mind again and again, which is to say, keep at it. And as the years go by, and imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these, but things will change in you. Often you will feel very, very small because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the physical word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you to his forever eternal home. This is the end goal, that you would travel humbly and with an open hand and heart through your life, and that you would day after day go through the grueling task of laying bare your heart and soul to God so that at the end of our days, however many days we get, you may look into the eyes of our Savior and say, I know you. I've traveled with you. I have been your disciple. And God will say to you, welcome home, my child who I love. Welcome home. This is the spiritual life. This is the resolution that matters. This is what we should do here in 2019 and in every year that we have. And so let us be found faithful to this task. Amen? Excellent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this conversation. Thank you that you are a God of organization, of time, and of space and of instruction. Thank you that you have crafted a discipleship journey for each one of us. So God, I pray now that we would leave here excited and motivated and that we would set about the task of honoring you with our lives. Seek us out, Lord, so that we might in turn seek your face. May we be found different at the end of this year than we were on this day that we shared together. It is with gratitude and joy that we thank you for the opportunity to be your children. Everybody together said, amen.